0: We're listening to the Loop podcast, A Project in Plastic Surgery Innovation. everyone. Welcome back to the Loop Podcast. So I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Martin. Today's episode is an in-service review on injectables. So we have a guest host today, Dr. Yasmeen Burns from Geisinger in Danville, Pennsylvania. So thank you so much for putting together this episode. And why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay. uh, Thanks, Morgan. Um, So a little about myself. I grew up in Maryland. I went to undergrad in Vermont and then med school at UPenn in Philadelphia. And currently I'm a PGY1 at Geisinger Medical Center Integrated Plastic Surgery Residency Program in Central Pennsylvania. So it's actually, if you haven't heard of it, it's a fairly new program, just started in 2017. And it's been such an awesome experience to be one of the first few residents coming through um, and getting to help shape the program in little ways. Uh, So my interests within plastic surgery so far include microsurgery and medical education. But honestly, uh, at this stage, pretty much everything is new and exciting. Uh, And I think The Loop is such a cool project, and I'm really excited to be helping host this episode.
0: Great. You know, I love hearing about new programs, so I'm glad you're telling us. I'm sure there's medical students out there that are really interested to hear about um, more spots opening up since it's so competitive. So let's get started. And first, tell me about what are the resources that you use for this episode? Um, so to make this
1: episode, uh, I went through the review of plastic surgery by Donald Buck, colloquially known as the Buck Book, uh, first and second edition, Essentials of Plastic Surgery, uh, and Gravin Smith. And then I also um, included some concepts from prior in-service exams from 2017 through 2021. And those were kind of spread out. So used a keyword search to find the relevant questions.
0: You know, I know that injectables doesn't have its own specific, own specific category on the in service. However, I think you did a great job of kind of looking through and finding um, all the specific questions that are kind of dispersed throughout.
1: All right. So to get started, uh, again, today's topic is injectables. For the most part, that can be separated into two big buckets, fillers and botulinum toxin. And so for each of those, we'll discuss indications and contraindications, technique, complications, and other facts that are good to know for
0: the in-service exam. Great. So let's start with botulinum toxin and its different formulations. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Uh,
1: So botulinum toxin is derived from the bacteria Clostridium botulinum. It works by cleaving the snare protein and inhibiting presynaptic acetylcholine release at the neuromuscular junction. It's injected intramuscularly in humans uh, for chemogenervation, resulting in paralysis of the muscle. The most commonly used formulation is onabotulinum toxin type A, brand name Botox or Botox Cosmetic. They're actually the same thing, just marketed differently. There is also a abobotulinum toxin A called Dysport. And it's important to remember that Dysport has lactose as a component when it's reconstituted. So it's contraindicated in patients with milk allergy. Another variation is incobotulinum toxin A, brand name Zeomin. and there are a few others, but those three are the most high yield.
0: Great. So what is the Botox Cosmetic FDA approved for?
1: It's approved for treatment of facial wrinkles in three particular locations, the glabella, also known as 11 lines, the lateral canthal region, also known as crow's feet, and the forehead, but it can also be used off-label in other areas of the face.
0: Great. So what about botulinum toxin type B? Can we use them interchangeably?
1: So botulinum toxin type B, uh, one example of which would be the product Myoblock, is approved for treatment of cervical dystonia and hemifacial spasm, and it has a few differences from type A. For example, it's more acidic and it's therefore more painful when you inject it. It has a greater greater radius of diffusion longer shelf life, and also a faster onset, but a shorter duration of action. It is not first line for facial writids, but it can be used off-label if the patient develops antibodies to Botox type A, which would clinically show up as a decreased effect with repeated injections of Botox type A.
0: That's good to know. So say we have a patient that comes in wanting Botox for facial writids. What would you want to look for on pre-procedural evaluation?
1: So there are some things in their history that would be contraindications to Botox treatment, or at the very least, reasons to proceed with caution. And these are mostly diseases or medications that already affect the neuromuscular junction. For example, if they have myasthenia gravis, Lambert-Eaton syndrome, or if they're taking drugs such as aminoglycoside antibiotics. How about, do you want to walk us through some of the uses of botulinum toxin and the corresponding muscular anatomy?
0: Yeah. So when we talk about botulinum toxin injection to the glabella, we really mean injection of the medial portion of the paired corrugator supercilii and injection of the procerus, a single midline muscle. These muscles work together to pull the eyebrows medially and inferiorly into a frown. The corrugators create vertical right tids, while the procerus creates horizontal ones. Forehead injection is what it sounds like, and involves injection space throughout the frontalis muscle for forehead rhytids. Right and the lateral canthal region or crow's feet correspond to the lateral portion of the obicularis oculi muscle. As a side note, that applies to all of these, botulinum toxin is mainly useful for dynamic rhytids, right meaning those that are seen with animation of the muscles in question, as opposed to static rhytids, right which are present at rest.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so what are the FDA approved recommended doses for each of those sites?
0: Yeah. So keep in mind, these are the FDA approved recommended doses. And obviously in real life, you know, people get various amounts of units, um, to each area, and this is going to vary clinic to clinic based on what the physician or practitioner is marketing to you. Um, but in terms of FDA approved, so for globular lines, it's a total of 20 units. Forehead is 20 units too, but typically done in conjunction with glabellar lines, which would be a total of 40 units. Lateral count the lines should get 12 units per side or 24 total.
1: Okay, um, that's good to know that it varies from practice to practice. Um, are there any other sites that can be injected for RITs?
0: Yeah, sure, but these are off-label uses. Um, others would include bunny lines, which involves chemodenerva- denervation of the levator labi superioris, alae nasi and nasalis, and horizontal nasal lines, which involves chemodenervation of the procerus.
1: And what should you tell the patient about when they can expect results?
0: Sure. So the onset of action of onobotulinum toxin A is 24 to 72 hours. So in reality, definitely more like 72 hours you know you usually tell the patient like 3 plus days maybe more like 5 days and then up to 2 weeks to see the maximum effect and it typically wears off within 3 to 4 months however you should counsel the patient that these time frames vary and do you want to talk some more about the complications of botulinum toxin injection
1: well you can get changes in brow position either elevation or ptosis That can be medial if you denervate the orbicularis, corrugator, or procerus too much, or laterally if the frontalis is overtreated.
0: Sure, and we will talk more about ptosis in just a moment. So first, tell me what is this phenomenon we hear, the Spock's eyebrow deformity?
1: So that is when uh, the medial frontalis muscle is overtreated. So you get brows that are much higher laterally than medially, which creates an abnormal arch or Spock's eyebrow. You treat this by targeting the lateral frontalis to relax it. But you must remember to stay two centimeters above the brow in this region.
0: So that's true. So the more medial relaxation compared to lateral. So I think typically when I'm injecting, I think it's because maybe the injector has not effectively hit that lateral position um, and maybe they stay a little too medial. So one thing to do is you really need to make sure you have an injection point right over that lateral peak of the brow or else the frontalis is still going to activate. And that's how it peaks up the lateral brow. So anyways, just something to keep in mind. So what about upper eyelid ptosis? How do you get that?
1: So upper eyelid ptosis can occur through two different mechanisms. The most common is when you treat the glabellar region, and then the Botox diffuses through the orbital septum to affect the nearby levator palpebrae superioris muscle, and that causes the eyelid to droop. This can occur up to two weeks after injection. The other less common mechanism is that sometimes a patient can have an overactive frontalis muscle that hides eyelid ptosis that they already have. So then when you treat the frontalis with Botox, the eyelid ptosis becomes visible. So you wanna inject at least one centimeter above the brow to avoid eyelid ptosis in either situation.
0: So I did have a patient um, that this happened to that um, she didn't necessarily have ptosis, but whenever we relaxed her frontalis, all of a sudden, she noticed she had you know more skin on her upper eyelids, and she actually didn't like that appearance. So, next time we you know didn't really treat the frontalis um, as dramatically because she liked to be able to raise a little bit um, and like the look of her eyes being more open. So, also something to keep in mind. And then, me personally, I actually had ptosis on my first injection, you know, just unilateral um, from the diffusion. So I'm not sure exactly what happened, but you know how the package insert says don't work out after you get Botox. Well, I did, uh, despite the recommendations for the no strenuous activity, um, because it says that because, you know, once you increase your heart rate, it can still diffuse over like that first 24 hours or so. Um, and so that can happen. So that's why you have to always warn your patients. So if you get eyelid ptosis, um, how can you treat it? So you
1: can treat it with eye drops that contain an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. Um, and the example most commonly used is apriclonidine. These cause the Mueller's muscle, also known as the superior tarsal muscle to contract since it's innervated by sympathetic fibers. And then that causes the eyelid to elevate one to three millimeters.
0: Yeah, important to know for exam, they love uh, to confuse you and call Mueller's muscle the superior tarsal muscle. So um, I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, So you've heard it now, do not get confused. (laughs) You'll be thinking Mueller's muscle is the answer and they'll try to confuse you. So it's also superior tarsal muscle. So what else can you use Botox for aside from facial retids?
1: Well, so there are many non-aesthetic applications of Botox, but I'll just name a few of them. Axillary hyperhidrosis that doesn't respond to antiperspirant therapy is one of them. And then chronic migraines is the other major one. It's also first line for masseteric hypertrophy, such as in patients with bruxism, but this is an off-label use. If you do inject into the masseter, it's important to remember that anywhere below the transverse line between the earlobe and the oral commissure should be safe. Other uses are less well-established but are promising and sometimes tested on the in-service anyway, such as upper extremity vasospastic disorders, think Raynaud's syndrome, and even hypertrophic scars.
0: So what's the dose for hyperhidrosis? I believe there was recently, maybe last year, a question on the exam.
1: So for axillary hyperhidrosis, it's 50 units per side. For palmar hyperhidrosis, it's 100 units per side. And for plantar, 150 to 250 per side. So a lot higher than the cosmetic doses.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty high dose. And can you imagine how much that would cost if you were paying for that much Botox? Um, so that's crazy. Um, so another thing that was tested recently, how does botulinum toxin work for renowned?
1: So it inhibits Rho or Rho kinase activity. It inhibits secretion of substance P and it decreases C-fiber nociceptors. Um, And another important fact is that you should inject it around the digital vessels in the palm.
0: Great. Yeah. The dose for this, I believe is variable. So, um, I've done this a few times. We always get consulted by, um, you know, whatever medicine team, um, inpatient, I mean, it depends on which paper you look at or which hand surgeon you ask. Um, but typically I've been asked to inject 50 units per hand, um, divided and injected at each web space. So that way you order a bottle of Botox. It has a hundred units, um, you only have to order one bottle to inject both hands, and keep in mind that you know it has to stay cool on ice. And so sometimes maybe the pharmacy or the floor nurses they don't remember this when you order it because we don't commonly do this with uh, inpatients injecting Botox. So I've done this several times, and it's just something you have to think about. Make sure and call the nurse and say, "Hey, I injected this. Put it on ice, please, before I get there." Anyway, so now let's move on to fillers.
1: Okay. Um, So
0: Morgan, what different types of fillers are there? So there are a ton. So let's break it down into categories. First, biologic versus synthetic fillers the biologic category includes the most commonly used type by far hyaluronic acid. And sometimes we just call it HA. So hyaluronic acid. It also includes collagen. Some sources refer to fat grafting as a type of autologous filler. We're not going to go into fat grafting today. We're just going to stay with the biologic synthetic hyaluronic acid type of filler.
1: All right. Yeah. I mean, hyaluronic acid is definitely the most commonly used Um, and tested from what I was reading. What else do we need to know about it?
0: So hyaluronic acid is made up of glycosaminoglycans or GAGs. So these structures are very hydrophilic, which allows them to retain moisture in the dermis. And they can be animal based or bacteria based. Brand names include Juvederm, Restylane, Perlane. It is also the only filler that is reversible. Specifically, uh, we reverse hyaluronic acid with the enzyme hyaluronidase, which breaks it down. And the effects last six to 12 months.
1: What anatomic plane do you inject hyaluronic acid filler into?
0: Well, it actually depends on where you're putting the filler. Um, so if you're doing tear trough or cheek augmentation, you want to go all the way down to the subperiosteal plane. So the tip of the needle actually hits bone when you first put it in. So for filling deep right tids, such as nasolabial and perioral folds, you inject into the subdermal space. Um, and this last fact has been tested recently.
1: Yeah. Um, so I remember from the, the few resident injectable clinics that I've gotten to be a part of that little crunch that you hear when the needle goes to periosteal, it's really good to know about those different planes. What happens though, if you're trying to inject hyaluronic
0: acid subdermally, but you go too superficial. So if you're too superficial, so things that can happen, you can get little lumps that are palpable and can be visible. So these lumps can have a bluish discoloration. um, And this is specifically referring to the lower eyelids. What's that bluish discoloration called? So that's the Tyndall effect, and that's named after a famous physicist.
1: And what do you do uh, if you get these lumps and discoloration? How do you treat them?
0: So first, you should immediately massage the area if you can redistribute the filler more evenly so the lumps are less obvious. But if this doesn't work and you use hyaluronic acid, you should try injection of hyaluronidase, which, like we mentioned, will break it down.
1: What if you inject hyaluronic acid filler and the patient then has evidence of an arterial injection, such
0: as painless blanching or decreased sensation? So again, hyaluronidase. So, um, the initial dose, this is really important because this has been asked, um, 150 to 300 units. That's the initial dose. Um, the arterial compromise can occur either because the hyaluronic acid was injected into the artery or the blood supply was otherwise injured by nearby injection. Also, Central retinal artery occlusion is extremely rare, but can happen when injecting on the nasal dorsum, since the nasal dorsal artery is a distal continuation of the ophthalmic artery. So the treatment for that would be retrobulbar injection of hyaluronidase. The most common complication of hyaluronidase injection is local allergic reaction. So that's actually really important. Um, That was specifically a question that I remember and kind of crazy to think about you know, if you have a patient in your office and they're having vision changes or God forbid blindness, you know, you can't wait to just send them to the ER. You're going to have to know what to do. And you've got to do that. Get behind the septum and just inject the hyaluronidase. And that's the treatment and very important to know for anyone doing injections.
1: Uh, That's really good to know. So what about collagen? Why isn't it used as often as a filler?
0: So it is actually FDA approved. It can be either human collagen, such as Cosmoderm or Cosmoplast, or bovine, such as Zyderm 1 and 2 or Zyplast. The issue with bovine collagen in particular is that it has immunologic reactivity. So about 3% of patients will have hypersensitivity reactions. So four weeks prior to using it, the patient needs an allergy skin test to make sure they are not allergic. Also when compared to um, RCTs hyaluronic acid is equal or superior to collagen and lasts longer. So collagen lasts only about three to six months and HA does not need any allergy testing. So if it was me, I would definitely go with a hyaluronic acid.
1: Yeah. It sounds like hyaluronic acid is, is definitely better in a lot of ways. Um, so all of these that we've talked about so far have been biologic fillers. What about synthetic fillers?
0: The most commonly used synthetic filler is poly-L-lactic acid, also called PLLA, so brand name Sculptra. So I think we probably usually call it Sculptra and know it as Sculptra. So it's FDA approved for lipoatrophy in HIV patients after antiretroviral use. So in non-HIV patients, it can correct soft tissue volume deficits for up to two years. Wow.
1: Two years. That sounds great. What are the downsides?
0: So there are several. So Sculptra, so it has a higher risk of nodule formation, especially in dynamic muscles of the face around the lip and eye. These are painful, red inflamed bumps that form several weeks after injection. Treatment options include injection of steroid or 5-FU, or if that doesn't work, surgical excision. Also, um, it has to be injected every four to six weeks for several months. And remember, you can't just dissolve it like hyaluronic acid. So it's much, I think, harder for especially the novice injector.
1: Okay, I see. Um, So what plane do you inject into for Sculpture?
0: So in an attempt to prevent nodule formation in the cheek, it can be subcutaneous and in the temple, subperiosteal. For eyelids or the orbital region, I would be very careful. So remember Sculptra, you cannot dissolve. And at least with hyaluronic acid, you can try to dissolve the filler to the lower lids, but this doesn't work well. And it also doesn't dissolve as fast over time. And it may even have to be removed surgically. So just something to keep in mind. Um, Most people try not to inject the lower lids. You could inject around the tear trough, but you want to stay inferior to the rim and away from the orbital septum
1: okay that's that's good to know what other synthetic fillers should we know about
0: well there's polymethyl methacrylate or PMMA uh, which are indicated for acne scars and is considered permanent so notably PMMA also contains bovine collagen so patients need that same pre-procedural allergy testing then there's Calcium hydroxyapatite, which is radius. And this might sound familiar. It's the same mineral component of human bone. It lasts one to two years and should be injected subdermally. Extra important to massage post-injection to prevent clumping and take care to avoid overcorrection. If you inject too superficially, you can get white nodules, which unlike the nodules formed from PLAA or Sculptra, they don't respond to intralegional steroids, So they need to be treated with needle disruption and unroofing or even excision.
1: Yeah, that sounds pretty invasive and hard to correct if you get it wrong.
0: Yeah, so that for that reason, plastic surgeons tend to stick to hyaluronic acid, but these other options are on the market occasionally used and definitely tested on for the in-service exam. Okay, now that we've discussed both botulinum toxin and fillers, what should we know in general when injecting? either of these two substances in our patients.
1: Well, there are some general safety principles. It's rare, but what would you do if you accidentally injected into an artery or a vein?
0: Yeah, not good. So, but for an artery, obviously you stop injecting immediately. Um, Then you would try to aspirate what you had injected. Ways to avoid this happening in the first place would be to go very slowly Use a small gauge needle or even a blunt cannula. I know a lot of people who only advocate for blood cannulas. For a vein, the treatment is conservative. Massage, warm compress, nitroglycerin patch. And of course, for hyaluronic acid, like we talked about earlier, you're going to use the hyaluronidase.
1: Oh, that's good to know. I know a lot of us have some sort of resident injectables clinic where we get to work on our technique. And of course, many of the tips that we get are going to be slightly different depending on attending preference but are there any universal technique pearls that could be tested on the end service?
0: Yes. So we mentioned this before, but smaller gauge needles are generally better when possible. They reduce the risk of vascular injection. They also minimize pain and tissue trauma. Of course, you can't always get away with using a very small needle. For example, if it's a more viscous filler and like I said, some people advocate for using a blunt cannula all the time for safety reasons. And they also say using the blunt cannula is easier to palpate what tissue plane you're in so you, you know can be more accurate in your injection.
1: Okay, I see. You mentioned viscosity when you're talking about needle size. So one last section. Let's talk briefly about how do we choose which hyaluronic acid filler
0: to use and what is G-prime? So briefly, which, of course, we could get into the weeds with this, but we're just going to stay pretty brief. But G prime refers to the viscosity and elasticity of the filler. So the higher the G prime, the firmer and more likely to keep its shape. So it would have more lifting capacity. The low viscosity filler can be spread more easily and should be used more for like fine lines. So more specifics about what filler to use and where to inject it is a little bit out of scope of this lecture. But if you look at our Instagram visual supplement, we're going to have a graph that shows ranking of some of the available products. And maybe we can actually address this again um, in the future with another lecture. That would be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, that would definitely be a cool episode. Um, Well, that's all that we have for now. I hope that you all enjoyed learning about injectables
0: with us. And thank you very much for listening. Yes, thank you. And if you would like to hear more episodes for In-Service Review, make sure and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast sites, such as Apple or Spotify. And don't forget, so last year we did have the entire season one was all In-Service Review. I'm not going to repost all of them, but you can go back, download them. They're still great material. Um, and then we're going to keep updating with some of the lectures and um, and some of the topics that we did not get to last year. So, That is all and make sure to follow us on Instagram to get in the loop.